Welcome to episode 12 of the Six Cells podcast. Um, today we're going to be talking about mobile and in particular mobile advertising and marketing. And um, for those listening in the future, uh, it's being recorded on the 15th of December. So happy Christmas, everyone. Um, probably be the last episode we put out before um, we hopefully get some sort of respite from what has been 2020. Um, Christmas is a time for looking forward and um, thinking about all of the good stuff that we've got ahead of us, but also a time of reflection. Um, and I thought that it would be a fantastic time to just have a look, a, a little back pass through history um, at the look of mobile advertising and, and just how far it's coming in a relatively short space of time. So um, in 2005, 15 years ago, there was no iPhone, obviously. Mobile advertising and marketing was very much in its infancy, mainly text, um, SMS-based um, advertising. And so today's guest, um, to take that back pass through history, um, a big football fan, so he'll hopefully appreciate the analogy, um, is um, David Murphy, who's the um, founder and editor of Mobile Marketing Magazine, uh, a magazine that started, as I say, back in 2005, some 15 years ago. So David, welcome to the Six Cells podcast. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Good. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's good to hear your voice again. It's been a little while since I've, uh, I've spoken to you. So, I mean, if I look back at my own journey in mobile marketing or mobile advertising, 2005, 2005 feels pretty early. That was way before I got involved in this fun time. Um, I, I'm really interested to know, I mean, it was way before the iPhone, um, it was way before any sort of um, advertising was happening in any sort of big way I would say what made you think all the way back then 15 years ago um, that mobile marketing magazine was a good idea well it's interesting I I'm, my sort of journey to here I suppose starts when I did a French degree and uh, I was never going to get a 2-1 my essays weren't well argued enough but uh, one of my uh, lecturers told me that he really enjoyed my my prose the way I wrote and I thought oh so you could make a living writing potentially so, um, cut along, so always short, fast forward to um, the year 19, uh, 1990 or 1985, 1990, and I get a job uh, in London on a magazine called What Video and TV, and it's a bit like Stuff or T3, writing about living room tech back then. And um, towards the end of my time there, um, we were paying a couple of guys, freelancers, and they were making quite a lot of money reviewing a load of kit, and I thought, well, freelance journalism, that might be the way to go. Uh, and I managed to um, take myself freelance in 2005, which was just about the birth of sort of e-commerce, um, uh, I would say. Um, let me think, I might get my dates completely wrong here, Mike. 2005 was when the magazine launched. So yeah, I think I'm five years ahead of myself, but that's what you get being, a, being an old fella. So anyway, I went freelance just at the start of uh, things like Amazon and e-commerce. And I thought, right, I'm gonna keep track of all this because it looks like it might be interesting. Managed to get my foot in the door with Haymarket Publishing, who published marketing uh, and uh, direct response and marketing director, various marketing magazines. And I became one of their sort of go-to writers about the internet. So I kept tracking it and tracking it. And then um, you get to 2003. So apologies for mixing the dates up earlier. As I say, I was a bit ahead of myself. And I think that was when PECA came out, Privacy and Electronic Communications Act. And it was all around digital marketing and the permissions you needed to get from people. And one of the things uh, related to um, SMS um, and the fact you needed to get people to opt in. Now there were very few, and I was asked to write a couple of pieces about this. There were very few sort of mobile marketing firms around uh, in those days. I remember Flytex, I think were the original, uh, One Two Snap, Aerodian. 
incentivated, or I don't, don't think you're around anymore, sadly. And I, I went around all these companies and said, what impact is this legislation going to have on your mobile stuff? And they said, none, because we wouldn't do anything that's not opt-in. You know, it'd be crazy, even if it wasn't against the law. It's such a personal device. And that was a point that really got me thinking, wow, if you could, if you could nail that, if you could get that right, if you could get people to agree to receive a message just for them on a device that they're going to carry around with them everywhere, that's going to be something. Uh, and that's when I first started investigating the idea of putting a, a magazine together. And in those days, my first thought was a printed magazine. So I went to uh, Lars Becker, who was running Flytex, was also ch uh, the chair of the MMA, and put, put a proposal together with a friend who was in contract publishing about a printed magazine that would have best, uh, best practice, case studies, et cetera, et cetera. And they just couldn't afford it. Um, and so I just let the idea die for a couple of years. And around about 2005, a friend of mine was doing, doing a blog on gadgets using TypePad. And he said, that's a platform you need. It costs you $10 a month and it's very low risk. And, and the rest, as he says, geography. That was November 2005. I put the first post up. Right. OK. Um, in, in, the, um, in getting ready for this podcast, I asked a few uh, industry legends um, to um, to give me some thoughts about the last 15 years and it does I think there's probably quite a lot of people working in mobile now that can't remember the time before mobile which um, you, you and I obviously can but 2005 as I say feels feels really early but um, I asked uh, Mark Cody for um, for a quote he was at O2 at the time um, obviously mobile legend he's been um, through sort of Tesco's and um, his own consulting Eurostar uh, and now pure, pure Jim, but I asked him what his memories were of 2005. And um, he said that um, Google acquired Android um, and um, that really stands out for him. I, I'm wondering if that made any, um, you know, any sort of um, played any part in your decision making. Um, Mark goes on to say that um, had that acquisition not happened, would we have seen more today from the likes of Windows and BlackBerry in terms of operating systems? Um, I don't know what your thoughts on, on that are, David. I, I can't say that was a standout moment for me, really. I mean, I was fortunate in that I was working as a freelance journalist. I was sitting at my desk all day. It was mainly desk-bound work. Obviously, you get out to press conferences from time to time. So I could afford to just spend a couple of hours a day looking around, putting a word out that I was interested in this, in this content. Obviously, some of the marketing companies I was already in contact with and, and slowly put together this, this blog that, that grew and grew. And I, I don't see any one sort of acquisition or thing that happened as, as being a thing that said to me, you know, right, this is going to make mobile a big thing. I think a lot of people wondered whether it would be. I mean, if you look back to 2005, I remember a guy from Peugeot who used to uh, uh, do a lot of conferences talking about um, uh, downloadable um, Java um, brochures, which was like the first form of an app on a on a phone, Chris, Christian Chumley, I think it was called, uh, used to do it with a, a mobile agency whose name escapes me for the moment. And it, there was just this gradual build-up of things, uh, smash hits doing these text clubs where for 50p a pop you could find out what boys home were up to this week. Um, the the first iteration of the mobile internet, you know, WAP, uh, Wireless Application Protocol, uh, which went by the acronym of uh, WAP is crap, you know, because it pretty much was. And then you had the likes of uh, Incentivated, who I mentioned earlier, building these massive opt-in uh, 
um, mobile databases for the most unlikely companies. You know, who would have said that M&S would have been a, a, a front runner in all of this? But thanks to a lady called Shen uh, Vate, who last time I looked was at John Lewis, um, they really got their mobile act together. You know, at one point they were selling um, £3,000 sofas and £5,000 kitchens off, off their mobile internet site, and they were sending messages out to just short of 2 million people, I think, um, on uh, from their customer database who had said, yep, I'm happy to give you my mobile number and I'm happy for you to tell me when there's a sale on or whatever it is. Um, the operators were, were very big into it. You know, if you remember the days of the operator portals, Vodafone Live um, 3, with I think they were the first ones to come up with a, an unlimited data plan that let people access all this stuff when they, when they weren't on Wi-Fi. Uh, Yahoo uh, were very sort of active. I seem to remember going to a lot of the, their events in the early days, all trying to push this idea that this is really the next iteration of the internet, and it's not one that you need to be sat at a desk to enjoy. It's one that you can get to, you know, wherever you go. And this is this is before Steve Jobs and and um, and his team had even sat down and started sketching out the iPhone. So there was there was a lot of stuff going on. I think WAP was the thing that did most sort of damage to mobile in those early days because companies tried it and realized this is not very good and it's not doing our, our sort of uh, reputation any good. And I think that put a lot of people off. And then it was around about the time of the iPhone where, you know, the bandwidth got a bit better, the handsets got a bit better uh, and, and companies like AdMob uh, appeared. You know, Russell Buckley went to work for AdMob. I think he was their first employee and, and that, this thing called mobile advertising started to be a, a possibility and then you know you were moving into a slightly different world again it was it was more than people giving permission to be marketed to it was people saying well i'm going to visit mobile internet sites and it's only natural that i'll see some ads there because that's what happens on you know commercial properties so yeah. it's just a, a combination of lots and lots of stuff and lots and lots of people who saw an opportunity to make money frankly if they could get this right yeah, I think those early websites, I can't remember the year um, exactly that the Telegraph website launched, but I remember trying to access it via WAP. And, um, you know, even when you did get there, it was a pretty, um, I mean, by today's standards, a pretty clunky experience. It was just essentially um, a page full of hyperlinks to other pages. Um, it, it, there was not an awful lot of finesse about it. No, anyone listening to this that wants to recreate it, just, you know, just Google that term and, uh, and, and select images and you'll see what, you know, these images look like on these little clamshell phones. Just, just back on the dates, just in case I confused anyone earlier, when I came down to London in 1990, worked on this magazine for five years, went freelance in 95. That was the time that uh, Amazon was launched. I think it might have been the year before. Um, and then it was 10 years after that, after writing about it, um, online marketing for best part of 10 years. That's when the, um, the my own magazine launched. So apologies if I confuse anyone by getting my dates wrong. Not at all, not at all. So moving on from 2005 and clicking into 2006, uh, my next quote um, was from Mark Challoner, a guy that uh, you and I love, I know. Um, he, he talked about 2006 as being the year of the pre-iPhone. So lots of anticipation, but no real sense of how massive it would be and how, how massively it would change the landscape. Um, and he talks about how he was touring um, the US and going to universities and brands to try and 
um, get people excited about the idea of using um, this mobile device, which was still very much nascent. Um, and then I guess if we click forward one more year to 2007, I would say that for me, this felt like the, the biggest year. I mean, the iPhone was launched in June that year. Facebook had been um, out. I believe they launched their app at around that sort of time. I think they were one of the first apps on, um, on Apple, if I remember uh, rightly. Uh, Mark Slade, um, another um, mobile legend, launched full screen advertising in the UK, which enabled media buyers to uh, buy premium websites from one place. I mean, we forget, and it's with, with programmatic being as it is, today we forget that it was a really painful experience trying to create um, a piece of advertising creative and then buy it across multiple websites when inventory was quite um, disparate and, and trying to go to the Telegraph and the Guardian and the Times or whatever and trying to do all of that was really painful so far. Well yeah and if you look back at uh, if you look back at um, the guys from Ring Ring Media um, they eventually sold out to Amobi and Amobi eventually sold out. And, and when I met them very early on, they said, we're just basically taking the pain out of it because it's, it's impossible to buy a, a cross network buy. I think this was just in, in the days of just being able to advertise on operator portals. And that's, that's what they did. And, uh, you know, did very nicely out of it. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So 2007 feels like a massive year for those, those reasons. What were your, you're a couple of years in business at this stage. Was there a party at um, David Murphy Towers? You're like, okay, this feels like uh, to use the phrase that has been used every year since the year of the mobile. Did you, did you, was there a sense at that time? Do you remember of feeling that mobile's coming of age? Well, it was more a sense of the, the incumbent players had just dropped the ball, really. You know, they were still talking about next year being the year of mobile, you know, only about five or six years ago, weren't they? So it never seemed to have quite got there. But you've got to think back and just remember how dominant Nokia uh, and RIM, you know, BlackBerry were. Um, and then this phone came out from a company that had never made a phone before, you know, that made computers. Um, that made um, mp3 players and of course anyone who sort of played with any of their kit would know that the phone was going to be a good looking piece of kit but I just think every other mobile handset maker when they saw the iPhone must have thought why the flip didn't we do this it is yeah. absolutely gorgeous and I remember Rim in particular I think tried to sort of dismiss it and say that it was all style and no substance but you know once once consumers got their hands on this thing and all of a sudden you didn't have a, a hard keyboard to accommodate so the whole of the phone could be given over to a display and then you could you know you could watch movies on it and I think yeah I think the likes of Nokia and Blackberry just didn't didn't know what what was coming and then obviously you had the phone but more important than that was the whole ecosystem that grew up around it in terms of the app store that came out a year later and, you know, everyone remembers the Carling Pine tap and the, was it the My Fart app? You know, there were a few novelty apps and stuff. And then brands started to sort of look at it and think, hmm, yeah, these apps look quite interesting. So that's basically anyone can engage with my brand with one click on an icon on their phone. And it could take them through to a, an e-commerce site where they could spend money with me. Wow. And, you know, that's, that was a real game changer, I think. Yeah, for sure. I joined the Telegraph that year in 2007 and initially 
I was only looking after video advertising, but I think mobile was starting to be taken a bit more seriously, but it wasn't a line item on a budget that was uh, worthy of its own, um, its own person, if you like. So I, I ended up being um, head of video and mobile advertising as well, which I'm very grateful for looking back because that was my initial um, sort of sojourn into um, mobile, if you like. But it was, uh, it was, you know, we had the iPhone and we had the iPad by this stage. Um, but advertising banners were pretty poor. Uh, I remember it seems funny to say this now, but we were selling, uh, you know, we were partnering with brands like Audi and HSBC to sell sponsorship, tenancy sponsorships about iPad app. Um, but there was no sort of dynamic serving or anything. And so we had to hard code the adverts in, update the SDK. So it all went live. And then um, when the campaign finished, we had to then update the SDK again to get rid of the advertising, which um, wow. <laughs> it, feels, um, it feels ancient, literally. Feels yeah. ancient. Um, and that was back in, what was that? It was around 2008, 2009. Uh, I spoke to Ben Rosser, a mate of mine, who was uh, a former head of mobile at Global. And he said that for him, 2008 was um, the global year of the mobile because that's when they launched all of their apps. Um, and he remembers very much um, location advertising being um, all the rage then. And that's when it really sort of kicked off. It was all around find your nearest this or find your nearest that. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, another, uh, another legend, mate of mine, Lee Fells, who was a former head of mobile at The Guardian, of course, said um, he didn't think that there was a great deal of pride in how the mobile industry kind of... Um, looked in 2008 he said uh, we took a really rubbish desktop format in the banner and made it even more rubbish uh, <laughs> at a low price as well so um typically honest uh, lee fells there what what are your thoughts from that sort of time was that that felt like the um the experience uh, that iphone probably um and ipad probably kind of facilitated started to get a lot better um as it relates to our sort of mainstream publishers yeah, and again, I think it, it, it was just more the same in terms of each new sort of development, each new device, you've got somebody seeing a, an opportunity. And I used to see a lot of the same people at various events, and they were living out of suitcases, basically flying around the world, trying to do deals with operators and with brands. You had companies that were... Uh, I've lost count of the number of um, get paid to look at advertising schemes. Remember, Blick was the most famous example. Uh, there's been various others down the years where it's been a question of saying to people, if you agree to look at an ad on your phone, you know, we will we'll pay you some actual money. Um, and then if you look at it, the amount of ads you would have to look at in a given month, I think one of them I calculated, you'd have to look at like a thousand ads to earn a fiver. And you've got to ask yourself, is that a demographic that most advertisers are going to be interested in reaching? I think there are still some of these schemes running today. I remember uh, three announcing one, I think it was, with an Australian firm just a couple of years ago. And to me, you know, the value exchange just just never added up. But again, I think, uh, as, you, as you suggest, you know, the launch of, of the iPhone and then the iPad and the App Store, it just got everyone feeling like, yeah, this is this is going to be a thing now. But I think that was the point at which people stopped seeing mobile as maybe a flash in the pan that people, you know, uh, would be uh, would be popular and fashionable for a year or two, and then it would die a death. It it just it just became a steady sort of progress and evolution from there. You know, when when Samsung saw what Apple had done with the iPhone, then they started making phones that looked very similar. And uh, I think there was a court case on that that only recently sort of uh, was concluded. Um, so it just made everyone up their game. 
and then on top of the, the actual devices, as I was sort of, uh, referring to earlier, you don't really want to be tied to just using th this thing on your home Wi-Fi system. So it was important that the networks improve the quality of their coverage. So, you know, you got 2G, became 3G, became 4G, and now we're looking at 5G. Uh, and it was important uh, also that, you know, consumers could afford um, to uh, use data on their phones without being charged an arm and a leg for it. So you saw all these all-you-can-eat data plans uh, coming in. And um, just one thing, I don't know why this has reminded me of this, but I went to a Google event probably about that sort of time, maybe a couple of years later, and they asked for a volunteer for the crowd, and they asked him for um, 10 things you could do on your mobile phone. And he got to about eight, and he was stuck. And somebody shouted out, what about make a phone call? And he said, oh, yeah. And it literally, it hadn't occurred to him because it was not something he really did on his phone. Yeah, people don't tend to make like, standard phone calls anymore. If you look at my daughter on her phone, she's, not, she's always on it, and my son as well, but they're kind of messaging. Or if she wants to talk to her boyfriend, she'll be like FaceTiming. But like, an, an actual like, audio phone call doesn't seem to occur. Uh, no, and I, you know, I'm I'm an unusual sort of parent. I remember when my kids were teenagers, and I I might have written something about it on the website. I was so proud to see them second screening. You know, most parents would have been telling them to concentrate on what they were supposed to be doing, but it's uh, it was a it was a moment for me. It was, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, in, interesting. So I I um I guess if we skip forward to 2012. Um, advertising, there was rich media uh, by this point. Um, advertising was definitely a lot easier. Uh, I moved to full screen in that year um, where I was working with um, some of the sort of biggest publishers in the UK to, to try and, um, you know, help them to monetize. Um, and um, Chris Blight, who's now at Ad Colony, was leading the, the commercial team. But I know that still then, even all this time later, um, it was still an up hill battle to um bring money into mobile it, it was it still wasn't as as recently as 2012 it still wasn't um just a given you know like so i mean i think mobile's overtaken desktop now but um even as as re recently as 2012 it was still some you know for some brands it was really difficult to to convince them that they should be spending large sort of sums of money in mobile i'm, yeah. I'm curious um david is there a year kind of that that you felt that that changed can you can you remember because you've written about this um every week since you know you know th throughout the whole journey so it's fascinating to hear here you know yes. when when you had a little alarm bell thing i think we've got that tipping point well i hate to i hate to disappoint you but i, I don't think so it's it's a bit like um it's a bit like putting a plant in your garden and you know taking a picture of it every 30 seconds over the course of a year or well, gardening is not my thing however it takes long it takes for that plant to to grow you know you wouldn't you wouldn't look at any one of those things and go oh, I'll contradict myself because I said the iPhone was a major moment but I think ever since the iPhone and the app store um, it's just been a very gradual evolution you know as the bandwidths got better the phones got better um the networks got better the um the quality of the experience that people have had on mobile um has got better um i guess you could say that um the shakedown of operating systems helped as well because if you remember back in the day you had all sorts of different uh, operating systems out there you have brew obviously the iphone Android, 
I think Sony Ericsson um, might have had their own operating system. And if you were a, a developer, obviously thinking of apps, then you know it's quite hard work if you've got to decide which one you were going to support. And I think it it probably became obvious that around about that sort of time. I mean, eight years ago, it could have been a year earlier, a year later. But once it became obvious that this was going to be like a two-horse race between iPhone and Android. It did make it a lot easier, I think, for the whole ecosystem. I mean, obviously, I was writing about it, but you were you were there on the front line. Do you think that's a, a fair comment? Were, were you pleased to see the demise of like five different operating systems, so you were just left with two to worry about? Yeah, I think I think that yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if you're especially if you're a mobile network and you're trying to uh, work with publishers to put your SDK in their apps, you don't really want to be supporting five different SDKs. Mm. And updating those every time the operating system updates so yeah i mean i think that's fair it makes it easier for if the lion's share of people are on those two platforms it, it definitely makes it easier um it just you mentioned earlier it just i just had a flashback you, you about the um the dominance of nokia and um and blackberry mm. and i think i when i joined the telegraph even um in 2007 I had a BlackBerry. That was what was issued. So basically, back in the day, for those that um, perhaps a bit younger than uh, David and I, um, if you had any sort of business phone, it was likely a BlackBerry. Um, so it was a, a, a very sought-after device. It was basically like a, a mini keyboard, like a, a physical key keyboard uh, with a screen. And it was pretty much only good for um, email, essentially. We used it for email. It was a communications device rather than um, the, the iPhones of today. And if you had a, um, a handset for non-work purposes, it was probably a Nokia, wasn't it? Um, and it is. Yeah, and then and then gradually you see how how dominant they were to to you know where the market is today. Yeah, well, I think the Nokia Communicator was it called, which featured in one of the Bond movies. I think that was probably it wasn't the first phone that could access the internet, but it was the first phone that looked like it had been designed to access you know online content and look at it. So. Um, it was a bit like a, a glasses case, if you remember. It's sort of quite quite fat, clamshell, folded over in the middle, and quite long, probably about, I don't know, eight inches long. Quite a wacky device. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So, a bit of a fun question, I suppose. How many times do you believe that you've written the words year of the mobile in your career to date? I think I used to avoid it because I used to get fed up of hearing it myself, um, to be perfectly honest. I think, um, what do I think? I think, as I said before, it's just, it's, it, you know, the advertising brands money goes where the eyeballs is. It was a long time before Google started monetizing uh, its properties. It was a long time before Facebook did the same. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies in the ad tech space for, uh, obviously wish that they'd never bothered because the, between the two of them they, they account for the for the lion's share of stuff um it's just a question of sort of hanging in there until there's a point at which this thing that you're trying to push has become so important to people and, and attracted so many eyeballs and it it just becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy really that the, the money's going to follow i mean i think mobile ad spend obviously pre-covid have been sort of increasing pretty steadily year on year and be, uh, taking a bigger share of the, the overall digital pie. 
I think what's interesting within that, I, you mentioned Adcorn, a company I know well as well. I've spoken to to them and to Gameloft and to various other companies this year who just talked about mobile games. And uh, we all know mobile games, obviously, you know, whether you're playing Candy Crush or Words with Friends, I actually don't spend much time playing games on my phone at all, but a lot of people do, my wife included. And they've all been singing from the same hymn sheet this year, which is your typical view of a mobile gamer is some degenerate teenager who's sitting in a darkened room playing games all day, no real life interests, no real disposable income. And the point they make, which I'm sure you know very well, is that nothing could be further from the truth, you know, that it's a wide demographic, that they skew towards being well-educated, affluent, and by the very nature of mobile games, where you've got word games at one extreme to sort of massive multiplayer shoot-em-ups, if I've just created a new genre, then thank you, um, at the other. So the type of person that's going to enjoy those games is, is almost, again, you know, self-selecting, so you can reach any type of audience on mobile games. Yeah, I, I interviewed Liam Brennan from Mediacom um, on this podcast um, a few months ago now, and he said that the the stereotype, if you like, of gamers is broadly split between console and mobile, and, and the console gamer is, I think he called them... Um, Degenerate. <laughs> ...eating pizza, drinking Aid with their headphones on in their bedroom, which reminds me of my teenage son, actually. Um, <laughs> without the red bull um but um yeah the the average the the if you look at mobile games it's actually more middle-aged um and the, the word and puzzle games you mentioned before skew more female um and I think maybe gaming if you like as one bracket was lumped in uh console and and mobile was lumped into the same thing but it's um, yeah but where i think it's interesting mike and i'm sure you must have had these conversations is if you forget about mobile at the minute if you just think of publishing and, and places where your ads can appear whether it's in print online or whatever you take a handful of top brand advertisers and you say the word premium to them and they're going to come back and say well you know telegraph um you know the um, Condé Nast magazines, places like that. And the argument that the likes of Adcorny and Gameloft have been making to um, these premium brands is no, on mobile, premium could be a, a racing game or a word game. It's wherever you find the audience that you're trying to look for. So uh, they're, they're really trying to get brands to reassess what premium means when you're talking about the mobile environment as opposed to any yeah. other one. I guess premium is in the eye of the, the beholder, isn't it? I remember going back to my Telegraph days, it's quite um, uh, an older brand, I suppose you would say, or it was then before the website um, took off and, and is going great guns. But the um, I'd go into agencies and talk about the Telegraph and they'd, you know, these young planner buyers would be sort of saying, oh yeah, I think that's, that's the newspaper that my dad reads, you know, like, and so there was no, there was no, um, brand affinity there with with them because it just wasn't in their world it wasn't um you know anything that they would have called premium mm. in their world and i suppose as to to your point you know the candy crush or words with friends or whatever might be the, the most premium thing if that's what somebody really sort of treasures and holds dear to them and you know uses every day yeah absolutely if you take an audience centric view of it i guess it's it's um it's going to be different for everyone yeah absolutely so if you were to take um, a look of everything that you've written or produced content-wise over the last 15 years and to come up with either the three pieces of work you're most proud of or the three stories you would say are the biggest that you've covered, what would you say they were? Oh, blimey. I'm no, sorry. I know that's quite a big question. 
Yeah, you see, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I, I'm, I've not been, you know, I've not broken scoop after scoop after scoop. It's, it's, it's not really been that type of magazine hmm. and I've not really been that type of journalist. Um, it's been more a question of just trying to track everything that's been going on and just provide a place where, you know, if you're a brand that's thinking and is augmented reality for us, well, here's a piece that, you know, about a campaign that somebody ran that got great results and great stats. So, so maybe we should be looking at it. What, what we've tried to do, I think, is A, keep people up to speed with the news and, and B, try and, try and put content on the site that would actually help people make the right decisions in, in what has been sort of uncharted territory. A lot of the time um, and I'm going to segue away from the question because that, honestly Mike over 15 years at my age to pick on three pieces that I'm really proud of I, I, I'm going to put it this way I don't have the ego for it you know once I've written one piece I get get on with the next I, I enjoy the longer form content some of the interviews I've done okay. I've really enjoyed doing but um, uh, where was I going with that you, but, 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 I think I've lost my train of thought Mike I do apologize I was going to okay. take it somewhere else no problem. No problem at all. So if we look at mobile today, 2020, uh, nearly at the end of 2020, um, Ben Rosser mentioned um, the, the location um, element of mobile phones. So I think that that's one of the key deliverables that mobile gave us is you can target people, whether they're relaxing at home or in the shop or at an airport or whatever. And so location is obviously big. We've touched upon gaming there. Um, uh, what, what do you think, in your opinion, what do you think the, the key... Um, in terms of the, the interviews that you've done and, and um, your own opinion on the industry, what do you think are the key benefits of mobile today? Um, and, and what do you think the next few years are going to um, see in terms of, um, you know, um, progression in, in, the, in the medium? Well, I think it comes back to, I'll answer it in a, in a sec, but just as we're having a, a nice sort of informal chat here, we talk about location. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Mike. When, when would you say the first major location-based mobile advertising campaign was? Give me a year when you think that might have run. Well, I'm going to go based on the, the fact I've got the show notes in front of me and Ben Ross has said it was 2008. I'm going to go with 2008. Oh, well, if, if Russell Buckley or Helen Keegan uh, hears this uh, podcast, you might have to apologise. 2000, um, and this was a thing called Zagme, um, at the Lakeside Shopping Centre in Essex. Um, Russell and Helen were both involved in this uh, thing, and as you arrived at Lakeside, you texted a number to a short code, and that number was how many hours you were going to be there, so one, two, three, whatever. And then that told the people running the platform how long, they could hit you with messages for again it was all opt-in so all the retailers that had opted into this Zagme scheme then could say right so uh, Mike's in the building now he's opted into this and we know that he's uh, he's here so um, let's start pinging him with a few offers there's a there's a great piece on uh, BBC breakfast time news on it with a couple from I don't know where they were from Ipswich I think um, very sort of uh, uh, great interview with this couple doing their Christmas shopping, I think it was. And um, they actually lost out because of 9-11. Um, they were due to get some funding and um, the investors um, got cold feet and uh, pulled out. And uh, Russell told me many years after that they, they made the right decision for the wrong reasons. But uh, I th um, it's just interesting that we think of location as being quite a modern, modern day thing. And uh, yeah. as, I, as I've said a few times, 
there were people looking at the phone in 2000 going, well, you know, we haven't got all the bells and whistles of an iPhone here, but how can we make this work? What do we have to do to do it the right way? So privacy compliant opt in, but also give brands that want to get involved, retailers want to get involved, a way to target people on this most personal of devices. So that's just a little aside. Yeah. But I think that it, it, it does segue nicely into what I think really works best on mobile is personalization. As I'm sure a lot of people listening to the call today, I'm sure you know, it's going to become harder for people to personalize using things like third party data and cookies. Cookies are, you know, being phased out. Apple's going to make its identifier for advertising uh, opt in early next year. So, you know, what do you do? Well, what you can do is try and get that data yourself. Uh, you know, what, what Forrester calls uh, zero party data, where people are quite, quite happy as long as there's a value exchange. And again, we come back to apps. If you, if you look at the typical app download, then a lot of companies get this wrong. And, you know, on, on that first open of an app you've just downloaded, can we track your location? Can we have your inside leg measurement? Can we have permission to send you notifications? And hang on a minute, I've, I've just opened this app for the first time. And, you know, there are some very good app marketing companies out there. I think of the likes of Braze and Lean Plum and um, uh, Yodel, although they're a slightly different end of things. And they, they really stress about this idea of the value exchange. It's absolutely fine for, for, for an app to ask people for information so that they can make the experience of using the app a better one and a more personal one. They can send them offers about the things they know they're interested in. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the IDFA there, and, and they're, they're, um, the, the, another update on the IDFA is that there's a third option now, isn't there, for consumers as it relates to location. So there's, uh, no, you can't track my location. Uh, yes, you can track my precise location. Or third one is you can track my uh, approximate location or words to those effects. So um, that would be interesting as well to see how consumers react to the third choice. It will. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, you would say most people given the option to not opt into something that had just happened automatically before would, would choose not to. And if you pick the bones out of that sentence, you're a better man than me. It sounds like a crossword puzzle. But if you give give somebody the right not to have their location track, they're going to say, right, well, I didn't realize you've been doing this. So stop doing it. I'd be interested to know if you surveyed a load of, you know, millennials, a load of sort of late teenagers, would they be that bothered as long as they know what the value exchange is. Why do you want to track my location? And this is the point I was making about asking for too many permissions the first time um, people launch the app. And, you know, don't just send a message that says, can we send you push notifications? Send one that says, time to time, we have great offers that we would like to tell you about via a push notification. Can we do this? And it's just giving people more of a reason. So there's going to be more of a reliance on, on first party data, which is, you know, something that a lot of, a lot, lot of brands don't have a lot of. Um, and there's going to be probably more contextual advertising as well. Um, but it's always like people say, you know, you, you throw a problem, I guess, at any industry and they'll find a way around it. So to me, it's just the next stage in the evolution of mobile and digital advertising. How, how do they cope with these? How does the industry cope with these changes that, that are going to happen? You know, various companies are coming up with their own identifiers that will replace either what Apple was doing or third party cookies. So just be more of the same over the next couple of years, people that instead of seeing a challenge, see an opportunity, because if they can, if they can solve a problem, no one else can, then they're going to, they're going to win big. 
Yeah. You mentioned too many permissions um, when you were open an app and I, and I have to agree with you, but I think since GDPR came in um, the, to the letter of the law and to my understanding, an app should ask you if you are happy for all of their partners um, to, um, to have skin in the game, basically to track you. But I've not seen anybody until very recently, I've not seen anybody actually do that. And then um, I, this, is, um, this is praise for live score. It's a, a, an app that um, gives you live scores of football games all over the globe. Um, yeah, I, know, I know you're a big football fan as well. So, um, so this is praise for them for doing it. But I um, got an, an update um, on the app and then I opened it and it asked me if I was happy to, um, to accept uh, that I was being tracked by a, a list of companies. And I, I was so taken aback by the number of companies that I recorded a video and put it on LinkedIn. I don't know if you've seen it, but I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling really? through pages and pages and pages of tick boxes. Yes or no, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And, I, and, if, and any, if anyone ever wants to see what the Loomascape looks like to a consumer, then um, look that video up on my, uh, on my LinkedIn. It's, um, it was quite staggering. And I've worked in the industry for a long time, and I was still completely taken aback at the sheer number of companies that want, um, want access to that one app. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, the first person that told me about this Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma, was a guy that sold... Uh, broadcast rights to cricket and other sports all over the world so he's, he's an intelligent guy and he he knows the way the world sort of turns over but he was absolutely shocked at all that so and I think the average fit for you to be surprised then uh, yeah, yeah that must have been quite something I, w- I want to be clear that I'm I'm I've, I'm giving kudos to LiveScore for the fact that they are actually taking uh, the letter of the law in the way that it's intended. I've not seen anybody else give me, um, maybe it's hidden away or whatever, but nobody else has ever led me to that page and said, these are all the companies that are tracking us. Yeah, uh, tracking it reminds me reminds me of a story doing the rounds before GDPR came into force. And I think it was a, the Royal Naval Lifeboat Institution. They were trying to do everything by the book. And they wrote to all the people that had a newsletter subscription um, and which was a good way of them getting donations each time this newsletter arrived. And they said, you know, there's this new thing coming in. And if you want to carry on receiving the newsletter, we need you to positively opt into it. And of course, you know, not many people did percentage wise. So they took them all off their database and then started getting angry phone calls and letters saying, where's my newsletter? So <laughs> they were trying to be too good. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have, have, perhaps updated the ability to opt out and assumed that if nobody complains, then it's okay to carry on. Um, yeah. But I mean, talking of it, talking of email, I think mean, the, the, the average open rate on a newsletter is about 20% or something. So it's already yeah, yeah. A, a very low uh, base that we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Good so point. what's, what's, what's big for 2021, um, David, it's that time of year where we look forward and uh, we get our crystal balls out and we, and we try and look forward to see what's, what's coming. Hopefully the vaccine outside of mobile, the vaccine will allow us to get back to some sort of uh, normality um, as a human race. But uh, what's big in mobile, do you think, for 2021? Well, one, you know, the, the pandemic has been has been awful and um, everyone would be more than glad to see the back of it. But some sectors have benefited. I mentioned mobile games, you know, e-commerce, obviously, has been... Um, been places that didn't really have an e-commerce offering that realized that they needed to get one going sharpish who were pivoted really well or semi-pivoted 
And one of the other interesting things, and, and this has been happening for the past few years, has been augmented reality. So, you know, you might think of it as a bit gimmicky and brands have been sort of playing with it for, for a few years. Um, I'll give you one example from a couple of years ago, IKEA, I think it's called Space, the app. And there's about 2000 items from their catalogue and they're, they're, they're not doing their print catalogue for the first time this year, actually. Um, about 2000 items that you can stand in the room where you're thinking of, you know, putting a, an armchair, whatever it is, and you can um, look at what that piece of furniture would look like in scale, in proportion, with the right colours. And you think, well, great, yeah, and, and it's, it's easy for brands to sort of jump on a bandwagon because this seems pretty cool. But if you think back to this scenario that we're in now, where you can't just walk into a department store and try on lipstick and, and eyeshadow, and, you know, I used to enjoy doing that on a weekend, obviously, <laughs> but um, you can't do that sort of stuff. And, and some of our events, somebody, somebody put, put that question, we're talking about augmented reality, there are a few retailers on the call, and um, somebody was asking this question is how can we replicate, you know, the physical agent consumer interaction and, and some said we're not going to get an answer because if anyone knows the answer to that, they're, they're not going to give it away because it's a six million dollar question. But uh, quite a few fashion brands have used augmented reality. I think Gucci, um, a few others spring to mind. Uh, is it Bolle sunglasses firm for these augmented reality try-ons? And it, it was happening pre-COVID. But I think that's accelerated it. So people have looked at it and said, well, this is not just a toy and a gimmick. It's a way of solving a business problem, which is people want to see what our eyeshadow looks like on their eyes, but they can't now go into a store and physically try it on. So what do we do? We get as close as we can to it. And AR is probably the best tech for it. Right. So, so AR then... Um... I mean, it won't be, won't be the only thing. And, and one of the great things about covering this space is you, you don't know what's going to come. Maybe somebody will come up with a formula for paying people to watch ads where everyone wins. I just haven't seen it myself yet. Um, what's going to happen to, you know, the Facebook and Google duopoly? People keep, I think it's wishful thinking, hoping that it's going to get broken up and that their dominance is going to be, you know, somehow diminished. But you don't really see many signs of it happening. Um, so, going, back, though, going back into the day and we, some of the days that we've covered and perhaps days before we've covered, MySpace um, was dominant. It was dominant to the point where you couldn't ever see probably one of the first social media sites. And it, and it was millions and millions and millions of um, users um, using it regularly and sharing music and stuff. And that's pretty much, I mean, I know it still exists, but it's pretty much gone away, isn't it? So I think... Well, if yeah, even better examples, Second Life, you know, do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, I do. I didn't play it, but yes, I, I remember it. Yeah, absolutely. And brands were setting up stall on Second Life, um, you know, 20 years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, while we, while we don't think, and we've already mentioned Nokia and uh, RIM uh, as being in a, in, a, in a position that you wouldn't think was assailable, um, and then, you know, a few years later down the line, you're thinking, sorry, who, Nokia who? Um, so, you know, to say that, Facebook can't be toppled or won't be toppled perhaps is um is you know yeah absolutely not, ne not ne true. never say yeah. never say never and, and you look at Amazon I was just having this thought this morning um I don't know why but you know people think of Amazon as a retail you know monolith it's not even the biggest part of their business you know the web service stuff I think makes a lot more money than, than the retail stuff and every retailer in the world sort of uh, you know trembles in 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 amazon's shadow will they ever be, be toppled is mm. you have to look at these things in a 
in a bigger time frame, don't you? You know, if you yeah. if you look with a sort of 20, 30 year lens and changes do happen. But it but it needs but it needs someone if it's not the regulators, then it needs someone in a in a garage with a better Facebook or a better Google or, you know, better Amazon to, to make that happen. I watched the Steve Jobs story again the other day. So that that in a in a garage um, resonates with me. The the was and Steve Jobs story. Uh, talking. I've seen, frames, I seen the film. Last point on that: if you haven't read the book, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think I've got it on my uh, Kindle somewhere. It's, just, it's on a, a very long list of things that I must read. So yeah, that's the best I'll... place to have it because it, it's a very big book. Otherwise. Yeah. Anyway, Mike, you, you're about to wrap up, I think. So, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned timeframes and uh, we're nearly at the top of the hour. So um, just remains for me to say, uh, I hope you and your family have a lovely Christmas. Um, and um, when we come out of tier three, uh, we must go for that, uh, that curry we talked about. And um, absolutely. Yeah. The same to you. Like we used to do in the old days. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't come soon enough, Michael. The best to you and yours and to everyone listening. Have a great one, everyone. Have a good Christmas. And thanks for your time, David. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye.